0: This is our second conversation with Stephen Kinzer. As I mentioned before, he's an award-winning foreign correspondent, worked at the New York Times for two decades. Uh, He's now a senior fellow at the Watson School at Brown um, and has published many books, including two that we're focusing on today, Overthrow, America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq, and more recently, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and The Birth of American Empire. Welcome back, Stephen. Good to be back with you. So we left off before on a, uh, a a big cliffhanger. We were talking about um, the debate over the Treaty of Paris and what would happen to Spain's colonial possessions, whether they would be allowed to go free or some kind of American rule to be determined later. Do you want to finish um, where you started? What happened at the debate in Congress about whether to ratify that Treaty of Paris?
1: This debate, as I said, Shines as a a highlight of American rhetorical brilliance. Uh, It's full of references to ancient Rome and ancient Persia. You hear references to Pliny the Elder and and things that you would never even dare to bring up with a U.S. Senator today. I think as I began to realize when I researched the book that uh, one reason for this was that during that era, every learned person had read Gibbon's book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And therefore, during this debate in Congress over the uh, future role of the United States in the world, many members of the Senate were saying, we're only going to share the fate of Rome and go down if we try to expand too far. Others would say, no, but the lesson of the Gibbon book is actually different. It is that Rome was able to spread its influence and its civilizing power over such a wide area. So, they had a common frame of reference rooted in the classics. Uh, It's a fascinating debate to listen to. Now, unfortunately, like all congressional debates, it was not conducted entirely on the level of brilliant rhetoric and deep theoretical thought. Um, There were also a lot of political deals being made. Um, One senator uh, who was a lame duck emerged as um, with the power to name all the postmasters in his home state. Uh, Another got the chance to name the federal judges from the state. Another became a federal judge. So a lot of deals were made in order to assure that the treaty would be passed. But even despite all of that, uh, the treaty only passed with a margin of one vote more than the two-thirds majority. So with that, with that narrow margin, the United States set off on the course of overseas empire. Now, there's a footnote to this. I have to flash forward a little bit into the future, just a couple of years later. Um, The anti-imperialists didn't give up after this crushing defeat and after the United States Senate did agree to seize the Philippines and all these other territories. One of the techniques that the anti-imperialists used was to challenge the constitutionality of American colonialism. Their argument was, it says in the Constitution that the government does not have any powers that are not explicitly granted to it here in this document. And there is nowhere in this document that says the United States has the right to rule over foreign peoples on the other side of the earth. Uh, especially if it does not give them the rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution. If we expand our rule, we must expand the guarantees that we give to all people under our rule. Well, that would be impossible for imperialism. You could not allow Cubans to have the right to free speech and free press and protest and the right to petition for a redress of grievances or Filipinos to have those rights Uh, Because they would then rebel. In fact, Andrew Carnegie made the wonderful observation that under American law in the Philippines, when we were the we were taking over there, it would be illegal to to display the Declaration of Independence on the wall, because that said that when distant authority becomes tyrannical. It's the right of people to overthrow it. And we were not allowing anyone in the Philippines to say that. So uh, the argument before the Supreme Court was, as it was often reduced down to, does the Constitution follow the flag? if we establish rule over faraway territories, don't the people there have the right to free speech and due process of law? They can't be tortured. They can't have their homes invaded. They have to be able to allow to have free newspapers and so forth. So the court finally, in a series of decisions, these are known as the insular cases because they had to do with islands, decided that no, the constitution does not follow the flag. And in fact, There might be countries and territories that are not ready for uh, constitutional democracy yet. That insular, a series of insular cases was decided by a five to four vote. That was, again, such a close margin. And the uh, justice who wrote the majority opinion had recently, a few years earlier, written the majority opinion in the Plessy versus Ferguson case—that was the case in which the Supreme Court decided black people didn't have all the rights that white people had in America. So, in that sense, it was the decision in the Insular case was consistent. If you believe there are certain people inside the United States who don't deserve as many rights as some other people inside the United States because of the color of their skin, you could certainly also believe that there would be people on the other side of the world who we govern, but we don't have to give rights to. Because we don't think they're ready to appreciate those rights. So that was the uh great result of the 1899 debate, the uh ratification of the Treaty of Paris, and the devastating realization on the part of anti-imperialists that the United States was now a colonial power.
0: And so I, I really love that you mentioned um Andrew Carnegie and also um and Plessy versus Ferguson you know, the whole kind of politics that are happening together. So zooming in a little bit more, especially because Theodore Roosevelt and Mark Twain are featured on the front of your book, Uh, who were the anti-imperialists and how did the politics of imperialism shape onto other politics going on at the time? I'm thinking about, or not reconstruction anymore, but I'm thinking about, um, you know, debates about Jim Crow, about segregation. Where did politics of empire fit In larger US politics?
1: It definitely fit into uh, the reformist drive in the second half of the 19th century in the United States. As that movement developed over a period of decades, it had three main goals abolitionism, anti imperialism, and women's suffrage. Those were the three great goals that were shared by an entire class of Americans, actually many of them based in New England. It's not an accident that a number of people who emerged in the anti-imperialist movement had been abolitionists. The first head of the NAACP, who had been governor of Massachusetts, emerged as the first president of the anti-imperialist league. So there are a lot of links. So when we look at the explosion of anti-imperialist enthusiasm at the end of the 19th century. We can see it as something like a mirror of the explosion of abolitionism uh, decades earlier. Uh, There was a sense that we found a great blot on the American dream, on, on the American ideal. The first blot was slavery, and that was eliminated as a result of the Civil War. The next step, because history thrust it upon us, was abolitionism. I'm sorry, it was anti-imperialism. And that was going on at the same time as the women's suffrage movement was going on. So the anti-imperialists, in a sense, were old fogies. They were the conservatives. You know, today, saying that the United States should not be meddling in the affairs of countries all over the world is thought of as a kind of a leftist idea or, or progressive. But actually, it's liberal utopianism that tells you the United States has well, the best ideas for everybody in the world, and we should go out and help change the world. True conservatism tells you, well, maybe we don't really know what's best for the Philippines, so we should just mind our own business. So anti-imperialists were actually harking back to an earlier age they wanted a simpler america it was the imperialists who were the dynamic young force later on some of the anti-imperialists thought that part of their problem was that they they were anti something they were always against something americans don't like that you want to be in favor of something that's expansionist and big and new and daring so Maybe in a way, the anti-imperialists were out of step with an America that suddenly during 1898 exploded with this aggressive fervor. However, let let me add a a little caveat here. Many historians of that era have suggested an interesting aspect of the uh, Treaty of Paris debate. So that treaty was the treaty by which Spain essentially gave up all of its pretensions to empire in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. Uh, And the United States assumed all of those. However, some historians have said that uh, if that treaty that went before the Senate was only about taking the Philippines, if if rejecting it would not have required the United States to renounce control of Cuba and Puerto Rico, maybe it would not have been read. Maybe it was a clever idea of Henry Cabot Lodge and other supporters of American expansionism to lump all of those expansions together into one treaty so that it would seem that if the Senate voted against it, it was rejecting the entire idea of American power, even 90 miles from our doorstep. If it had been separated and the question was only Should the United States take those thousands of islands in the South Pacific that we've never heard of called the Philippines, maybe, according to many historians, the Senate might have acted differently.
0: Interesting. I hadn't thought so specifically about that before, but that is a great transition to talk about the Philippines a little bit more specifically. So we're not going to get too much into the brutal forever war um, that occupies, um, or that rather the United States invades the Philippines and proceeds to launch a kind of parallel to Iraq or Vietnam. We're not going to get into the details of that. That is to say, it was a brutal war. um, And back in the U.S., dissent does not end in 1899. So anti-imperialists, the kind of almost the old abolitionists continue to fight back. So moving into the election 1900, what's the dynamic there um, it's a rematch between two former rivals, but what's going on in, in 1900?
1: There was a great shift in American opinion, I think, uh, in 1899 to 1900. Uh, as I said, the beginnings of the war were accompanied by a unanimous enthusiasm. Uh Later on, there were some doubts about whether the political resolution was correct or not. But then particularly during 1899 and into 1900, the Americans began getting horrific reports about what was happening in the Philippines. We were told something like what we were told when we invaded Iraq in in 2003. They're going to greet us with flowers. They're going to be so happy to have us here. And this is such a perfect example of the American attitude. Our view was, of course, the Filipinos hated being dominated by Spain. Spain is evil. Spain is cruel. Spain is brutal. They are going to love to be dominated by us because we're so different. It never occurred to us that from the Filipino perspective, we're just another foreign occupier. So Filipinos did not accept the American decision to absorb their country. A war emerged, and reports of that war and the way it was being fought made their way back into the United States. For a time, there was military censorship of press reports. A number of reporters had their articles shipped out to Hong Kong so they could be telegraphed home. After a while, military censorship began to break down uh, and was ultimately lifted. That led to many reports of atrocities. In addition, a lot of soldiers who were serving in the Philippines wrote letters home about things that they had done and their parents back home sent uh, printed those letters in newspapers, so there became a big backlash. Really, we had our first torture scandal, a- as it became clear that American soldiers were systematically shooting and torturing at Filipino civilians. This was made clear by letter after letter being written home by soldiers, not to mention reports written by journalists. The signature torture of that war was something called the water cure. It's very similar to the waterboarding that you read about in Guantanamo and other American bases. And the way it is, you force water down someone's throat and then you jump on their stomach until they die or they talk. Um, there are various permutations of it. While I was researching this, I began to ask myself, so what, where did that come from? What is waterboarding or the water torture or the water cure, as it was called in the Philippines? Well, it turns out that Americans had never used this. If if you look at the uh, wars that were fought against the Indians, you don't see this torture. And many of the officers that the United States sent to the Philippines had their previous experience fighting Indians in the Midwest. Those were... They brought the techniques that they used against the Indians to the Philippines, but they never used this water boarding, water torture. They did in the Philippines. What happened? Well, I figured out the answer. So that water torture actually originated in the Spanish Inquisition. It was used to torture religious heretics. So Spanish soldiers began to learn it. They brought it to the Philippines when the Philippines was a Spanish colony. Filipino tribes that were allied with the Spanish then learned it. They taught it to Americans. Americans used it in the Philippines. It then became part of the American toolkit, and it still is. So that's how the Philippines Philippines plays a real role in this continuum of water torture. Uh, The existence of this torture and others was quite shocking to Americans. And I think in a way it was a loss of innocence. Uh, It it was the beginning of Americans shrugging their shoulders and saying, you know, I guess if these people are savages and backward, uh, we have to do this. And the pressure uh, was so great for an investigation of this that uh, the Senate had to agree to uh, form an investigating committee to look into allegations of torture and the way the war was being conducted in the Philippines. Henry Cabot Lodge the great Senate promoter of that war, could not stop the formation of that committee. But he did the next best thing. He got himself named to be the chairman of the committee. First thing that he did was cut down the witness list. So no anti-imperialists were allowed to testify. And then he decided that uh, since the room where the hearings were going to be held was so small, unfortunately, there wouldn't be any room for the press either. Uh, Therefore, The whole set of hearings was a whitewash, and the committee never even issued a report. But the the torture scandal in the Philippines and the realization by Americans that when we push our power into other countries, there are going to be a lot of people that are not going to like it, set the stage for an American consciousness with which we're still living today.
0: And that is a great transition for me to ask you the million-dollar question, which is, Why does this period matter for today? How did it influence the US or the world that we live in today? It's everything.
1: It's the beginning of everything. Think back to 1898, our seizure of those islands, and then the debate over whether we should ratify the treaty that certified we would become their permanent owners. If we had decided differently, If a couple of senators had voted the other way, or if one Supreme Court justice had voted the other way and ruled that uh, colonialism was unconstitutional, the United States might have turned inward. We might have decided that all that glut, all that surplus production, all that extra wealth inside the United States could be used to raise up the whole population of the United States. We could have been the exemplars of a new approach to the world by great powers, which would have been, we encourage all to become independent as we did. Follow the example of the United States. Rid yourself of rule by foreign colonial powers. Find your own way in the world. We would have sealed the image of the United States as Washington and the founders imagined it, as the exemplar and preacher of liberty to the world. We were going to be the exceptional nation, the nation that didn't behave like the corrupt European powers. Instead, we succumbed to the imperial temptations. It doesn't make us unique. In fact, the opposite is true. It puts us in the same path as so many powers before us. The only difference is that we thought we were going to be unique and follow a different path. It was George Washington who, in his farewell address, made the wonderful statement, why quit our own to stand on foreign soil? When he said that in the same address, he added a very poignant ending in which he essentially said, now that i told you not to get involved in foreign alliances and uh, to realize that we need to concentrate on our own good and not be manipulated by foreign interests, he says, I know you're not going to listen to me. And he, he not only was he right in the advice that he gave us, but he was right that we weren't going to listen to him. So to me... The moment when we confronted this question, are we going to be stuck in the George Washington age or a 100 years later, are we going to forget that and realize that what Washington had to say and what Lincoln had to say about uh, government of the people, by the people and for the people was for another age. And now that we're about to enter this glorious 20th century, we're going to leave that behind and transform America. Whether or not that was a good idea was exactly what these people were debating in 1898 and 1898. And the outcome of that debate determined everything that has happened since, including the way we find ourselves sitting in the world right at this moment.
0: And I think that it's a pretty brilliant way to end it, but I want to push back almost against my better judgment. And, you know, something that I've been reading a few places, um, and I was thinking about the longtime presidential loser, William Jennings Bryan, who lost to McKinley in 1896 in 1900. And he lost when he was kind of running on anti-imperialism. Do you think that there was actually ever a chance for America to, you know, kind of go down a better path? Or was it kind of inevitable that if they didn't pass the Treaty of Paris, then imperialists would find some other way to win an election to ratify a treaty You know, do you think that ideal was actually achievable?
1: So historians are trained not to deal in counterfactuals. Fortunately, I'm not a historian, (laughs) so I'm allowed to do that. I think it's possible to make the argument that the United States was in such a frenzy and such a mood in 1898 that uh, it was a freight train that public opinion was not going to be able to stop. On the other hand, no clear alternative was presented in the political sphere. I blame Brian for not uh, wanting to focus his entire electoral campaign on anti-imperialism and for getting caught up in this crazy free silver idea that essentially destroyed his uh, uh, chances of defeating McKinley. Uh, So I wonder myself, given the character of the American people and this Andrew Jackson idea that we just go out and take what we want and then later on we'll figure out a way to make it legal, is very powerful in the American soul. Americans don't like to think about things. We don't like to understand things. We like to do things. And I've, given that predilection, I wonder if it would have been possible under another president to have taken another path. Uh, I, I have to believe, yes. I have to think there was another option. I have to believe that the decisions of individuals make a difference. But in this case, certainly at the middle of 1898, there was an explosion of factors, if I can use that word, bearing in mind the USS Maine tragedy, uh, that pushed Americans, at least momentarily, into a very aggressive mood. Another president might have been able to ride that out and, and master it. But at that time, even McKinley who was not in himself an eager imperialist like Lodge and Roosevelt, sensed that this was the way he had to go. You know, McKinley was the classic consensus politician. All he wanted to know was where is the American people? Where are the voters? That's where I'm going to be. And he decided in the end, quite reluctantly in a way, to become involved in these wars. That's perhaps the best sign you can have that at that moment, pushing the idea of American expansion overseas seemed like a great idea. If the vote could have been postponed for a short time, Americans might have calmed down. But in a moment of frenzy, we entered into a path uh, that we're still debating.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good point, too, that, you know, to really understand the time period, which I encourage everyone to do and to buy the true flag and everything else like that. But the point is, is that um, to understand the time period, like, The vote in the Treaty of Paris was being signed and debated as gunshots were just beginning in Manila in what would become the Philippine-American War. So there's a lot going on in a very short period of time. The very final thing that I wanted to ask you about, which I think is appropriate because it's on the front of your book about Mark Twain and Roosevelt. Can you briefly talk about the rivalry between the two of them personally?
1: Roosevelt and Mark Twain were great enemies in this battle over imperialism. Mark Twain, I always had this image of as a kind of nice humorist, like your gentle grandfather that's kind of nutty, but he has great stories and he rocks on the front porch. But actually, that was not Mark Twain. He was bitterly anti-imperialist. He thought the United States flag should be redesigned after what we did in the Philippines, and that we should replaced the stars with skull and crossbones. And he had some confrontations with Roosevelt. However, in certain ways they were similar. Basically they were both showmen. They both created an image. The image of Theodore Roosevelt as the Wild West man who went to fight in foreign wars is all a fake. Basically he's just a rich New York rich kid. And Mark Twain also made this uh Persona with his white suits walking up and down on Sundays to be sure to be seen. And either one of them could ever turn away from a camera or a mirror or an interviewer. So although they were great opponents, uh, in many ways they had a lot in common. Maybe that's why they were great opponents. Uh, one of the things I really learned doing this book was, uh, how intensely, uh, Mark Twain detested all the ideas that Theodore Roosevelt stood for. And in a sense, they epitomized generations, too. Mark Twain was an old guy who didn't want the United States to get involved in crazy new projects. Roosevelt was young and dynamic and wanted every crazy new project for himself. So they were uh, wonderfully matched antagonists. And I was happy to see that the cover of my book shows them kind of pointing at each other, because at least philosophically, that's what they were doing.
0: Yeah. And there, of course, I think there's one or two actual moments where they're in the same room and kind of tensely facing off. But I, I like the the quote, you've probably heard of it about Theodore Roosevelt wanting to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. I feel like that's a pretty good way to describe him.
1: No, I think they were both like that. Both of them loved attention and uh, imperialism was the perfect issue for them.
0: Exactly. Um, thank you again, Stephen. It's been a real pleasure. Um, that is all for today.